Hey everybody, thanks for checking us out. I'm just going to take some time and just unpack some truth and scripture and uh, hopefully it can be helpful to us. I want to talk a little bit about the characteristics or perhaps the nature of the New Testament church. just want to look at a few points. I'm well aware there's many. I'm well aware that many are others sharing good truth too. But I, I do feel kind of in light of all that we're facing and in light of the future that God has for us, we need to be specific and focused on the things that God has said and also make sure we're building according to His plan. Uh, I grew up in a house with my dad always used to say to me, if you want to have New Testament results, you've got to build with the New Testament pattern. And I love that because if we're serious about the, the fruit that we're looking for, then we're going to be intentional. We're going to have to build according to the Word of God. I love the book of Acts, and I'm sure many of you do too. It inspires me, it challenges me, uh, it encourages me, it certainly Gets me to question a lot of things that we're involved in and make sure we're trying to stick to the plan of God. But just some things that we can glean from the book of Acts. Just a few things if I can highlight them. Uh, I want to say this. God reigns despite circumstances. He reigns. We see that right through scripture, but certainly in the book of Acts. That's probably really good to hear right now. Also, another thing we see through the book of Acts is without his presence and his power, we the church can actually do nothing. Another thing is that God wants His church to grow. These people who don't believe in growth, God wants His church to grow. And He's not obsessed with growth like many of us, but He does want it to grow in many ways. And we'll talk a bit about some of that. Also, another thing we see in the book of Acts is that the people in the church were willing to work hard. There is a job for us to do. It's not all up to God and it's not all up to us. But there's us doing what we call to and God doing what He's called to. And when we work together, we get the job done and we become the church God's called us to be. And so the early church, they, they were willing to work hard, but also to beg God to intervene on their behalf. Another thing we see in the book of Acts is a church that prays is unstoppable. We've got to be praying. And, uh, and the early church prayed. They prayed. And we see the, the, the results outside of the building when the church got together to pray. And so a praying church is unstoppable. The church we also see in the book of Acts is it had to let go of the comfortable and often the familiar in order to fully follow Jesus and advance his gospel. Another thing we see in the book of Acts from the early church is that the message of the church was Jesus. Please hear that, friends. It was Jesus. It was nothing political. It wasn't social. They didn't try to legislate morality. Simply, they preached Jesus. Another thing that we see from the book of Acts is that the church was passionate about seeing people getting saved and coming to Jesus. It was, it's evident, not just for the evangelists, for the church, for all people, were longing to see more people coming to Jesus. Another thing we see from the book of Acts is that the crowd's opinions always changed. And when the church leaders knew that, and they didn't seem focused on the opinions of people, they stayed focused on Jesus Christ. And one of the most... Thing, the most telling things we see, I think, in the book of Acts and right through Scripture is that if Jesus is not setting us on fire, then I do believe that the fire will go out. And so those are some things that challenge me, keep me going, inspire me, and trust that we adjust to these things. Uh, but also I want to say, while I'm talking about the church and the characteristics or the nature or the essence of the church, I do want to remind us again and again, as we always have to, that while we're talking church, it's not about the church. Uh, the church is not the center of God's plan. I heard many people present it as it is, but it's not the center of God's plan. The scripture is very clear on that. But Jesus Christ is the center 
of God's plan. It all revolves around Christ, not around us. And so Jesus is the center of God's plan, yet the church is central to God's plan. And if we keep those two truths in tension, it's all about Him, but we are central to it. We're not, it's not about us, we're not, it's not us, it's Him, but we are involved with Him. Then I think we'll keep the revelation of Christ right, and the church will thrive, and the culture and the characteristics will find their rightful place. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you please to turn with me. We're going to unpack a truth and a scripture that I've preached on many times, others have, but I want to go back to this in light of all that's been said and taught and make sure that it's biblical, that it's right, that it inspires us, it keeps us going forward, and it keeps us in the plan and the purposes of God. I've often said if we if we want to live in the plan of God, we've got to stick to the purposes of God. We've got to keep on doing what he said and keep coming back to this, otherwise we get busy with everything else, and that's a dangerous thing to do. Matthew chapter 16, and we look at a few verses from verse 13 to 18. But but I want to say this short scene from the life of Christ, it yields some profound insights into His view, Jesus' view of His church. It highlights the things that seem important to Him, and can I suggest it also highlights the things that are not important to Him that sometimes we make too important. Jesus is not concerned with public opinion. (laughs) And we can see that when we read this text in Matthew 16. His initial question to his disciples was not intended, uh, was not intended as a way to gather poll results. For one thing, he already knew and was fully aware of what people were saying about him. Even more than words they were saying, he understood the heart and the motive behind those who were slandering his existence and mocking his ministry. And I believe that Jesus was wanting to see, to look into his followers his disciples' eyes and see what, as they reported what they were hearing. Maybe that look that probably betrayed some of their own feelings about the so-called Son of God. Maybe they were doubting and questioning. Maybe they were believing the report of the people. And so when Jesus asked, what do people say? I believe you want to look into the eyes of his followers to hear how they were responding to what they were hearing. And, uh, you know, maybe they were not so sure themselves when this Maybe they were inwardly inwardly wondering whether there might be some truth to what the people on the streets were saying about Jesus. Perhaps he was merely a sideshow attraction, not the one who is appointed heir of all things, not the one who is the radiance of God's glory, or the exact representation of his being, according to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. We don't know all the reasons that Jesus was asking this question, but we do know he wasn't trying to win the respect of the press or hoping to draw a bigger crowd as his next public event. The opinions of others were irrelevant to the, first, the, the number one goal and focus that drove Jesus to remain obedient to his Father, up to, go through, and beyond to the very end. And he is no more concerned today about a public opinion as he was those years ago. The church authority does not rest on the opinions of the majority, but on the authority and the rule of of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, Christ is concerned with our own personal revelation. The key question in this conversation between Jesus and his followers is the second one. The first question he asked, who do people say that I am? The second question is, who do you say that I am? And that's where Jesus seemed to focus. So let's read it together. Matthew 16, verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who 
do people say that I am? What are people saying about me out there? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. In other words, you're a good guy doing some good things, perhaps, is what was responded to. That you are great, but you're not really Jesus. You're not the Son of God. I don't know what the response was, but it, it seems that it was a wrong perspective of who Jesus is. And I've often said, if I was Jesus, I would have reacted right there to that response. I would have paused the scene, told my disciples, wait here, let me go show them who I am and go and bring down some thunder and some lightning and kill a few people and show my power and then get back to this question. But Jesus didn't seem too moved or even concerned about what people were saying about him. Why? Because he's not about public opinion. He's about revelation from his followers. And then he moves this question, not from what are they saying to what are you saying, which is more important, we believe. He said in verse 15, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? I've often paused when I've read that and said, Lord, let my response not just be like Peter. Let it be my response. Let it not be something I've heard, something I've learned. Let it be revelation and not once, but go ongoing that regardless of what I'm going through, I can honestly say you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And so Peter responded when he was asked this question, who do you say? And can I just be bold enough even into this camera now and say, who do you say? That Jesus is. I'm talking to pastors. I'm talking to translocal gifts. I'm, I'm talking to people who call themselves followers of Jesus. I'm talking to the church. Who do you say? Not what does your church say? Not what do your parents say? Not what does this team say? Who do you? It's your own thing that it's got to be the truth. And Jesus is still asking this question. Who do you say that I am? And in uh, verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Uh, this revelation of deity matters most, friends. And again, without trying to kind of repeat everything, I do want to tell you our revelation of Christ determines everything we are and everything we'll ever be. Deity. If we don't see Jesus as deity, if we just see him as a message or an add-on or a philosophy or a tag-on or a wannabe or a mini-god, I don't know what... We can restrict Jesus to. But let me tell you, if we don't see him as deity, Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then everything we are involved in and everything we'll ever do will be obscured to, to, to downplay and to diminish who Jesus is. And so that's why this truth is so important. Do you still see Christ as deity? We can talk about the church, but the church can't function without this revelation of who Jesus Christ really is. Deity. Do you see him as deity? Is he Lord and Savior? Is he king overall? Is he the Messiah, the son of the living God? Is he that to you all the time or at moments? And, and I, I love this truth. It's so important. In verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. You didn't get this from a man. You didn't get this from someone else. You, I don't even believe Jesus was saying, you, you, got it, you didn't even get it from me. What he was saying is, you got this from my Father. You can't get this from a person or a podcast. I mean, God will use things to get our attention, but God's got to bring the revelation of who Jesus is. And he said, that was not revealed to you. You blessed Simon because of your revelation of me. And that was not revealed to you by man. That was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Such good truth. Friends, still God's truth. I believe He's wanting to reveal who Christ is, is to the church. So we will reach these people out there who know not of Jesus. 
and who are looking for Jesus. But it's our revelation based on God revealing it to us. Verse 18, and he said, I tell you that you are Peter. Suddenly, everything changes. Now that you know who I am, I'm telling you who you are. And friends, there is such a challenge globally for the church and for individuals outside of the church and in the church of this identity. People are struggling and and I get it. The devil's job is to kind of get us to question our identity, get us to perform, to prove. And But Jesus is saying this, now that you know who I am, I can tell you who you are. In other words, you and I will never know who we are. And that affects everything we do, how we live and how we minister and how we go about our business daily. If we don't know who Jesus is, we will never know truly who we are. It's linked and it's got to be that way. It's not tell me who I am first, Jesus, so I can know who you are. It's I'm going to know who you are for me to know who I am. And so let's keep contending for that. Keep preaching that. I'm so delighted to hear the preachers preaching about Jesus again and who Christ is, not who we are, who Christ is, because when we get who Christ is, then we get to know who we are. And so he said, and you are Peter, dignity. I'm going to change your identity. Now I'm giving you dignity and identity. And on this rock, I will build my church. If you haven't underlined that, with all due respect, please highlight and underline my church. Jesus saying, I will build my church. And again, I, I just marvel that Jesus before this had never talked about the church. The church was never mentioned. This is the first time in history Jesus, who is king, who's Lord, who is the builder of the church, now for the first time in history preaches and speaks about the church. But note it's based on the revelation of him and understanding of who he is and then explaining to Peter who he is and then he begins to talk about this church. It's, it's so connected. We can talk about the church all the time. But if we don't talk about who Christ is and the revelation of Jesus to help us know who we are, the church can never function in the fullness of what God intended. And so he says, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not, will not overcome it. Speaking of this destiny and purpose and a church that's front-footed and let me just say there are religions out there that talk about Jesus is saying he's building his his church on a person called Peter now sounds great but unbiblical and cannot work because anything that is built on a man cannot stand I don't want to be based in a church or involved in a church that's built on a man it's built on Christ Jesus didn't say hey Peter I'm building my church on you Jesus was actually saying Hey, Peter, I'm building my church on your revelation of me. In other words, I'm building my church on me. And by the way, I'm changing your name and giving you identity. And so the point I want to make is it's not built on a man. It's not built on a gift. It's not built on a ministry. It's not built on a translocal team. It's not built on a pastor or a leader. It's built on the revelation of Jesus. And friends, we can talk the characteristics of the church and give all these concepts, principles, and thoughts. But if this truth is not taught and caught and preached and built around Christ, then the church has no hope. There is no hope for any church built on a man other than Jesus Christ. And that's why I believe it's so important to make sure we're not building around others, we're building around Christ, the chief cornerstone, the cornerstone. Without Him, the church will be shaken. And we've seen the church shaken. And I want to suggest we probably will keep seeing it shaken. Why? Because it's got to be built on the rock. And the revelation of Christ and Christ alone. That's important for us. It's important for people. If you're a leader, you should help people see Christ in this because your church will fall apart if the revelation's on anyone else 
And there's no future for a church like that. And so he says, and I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, verse 19 of heaven. Speaking about duty and authority. I, I love that Jesus has entrusted his church with the keys, not to the kingdom, but the keys of the kingdom. Jesus is the key to the kingdom. There's no way into this kingdom except through Jesus. But he's now saying, I'm entrusting you. I believe what he's saying is I'm giving you access and I'm giving you control. Keys speak of authority and control. And I'm giving you the ability and the, the, the responsibility to administrate my kingdom here on earth. Wow, <laughs> uh, that's radical. I, I, I keep saying I don't trust myself with a wheelbarrow, let alone the kingdom of God. But God's not trusting it to a leader or to your pastors. or to the. He's entrusting all of us to administrate, to activate and release the kingdom of God here on earth. That's duty. That's responsibility. That is bigness, friends. Not just the local church. It's God's people advancing the kingdom. And I love these truths. Destiny, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. I'm giving you duty and authority. And then he says, and whatever you bind, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That speaks of dominion and victory. And I do want to just say, we're called to live in victory. We are people of victory. And we have been given dominion. His church will succeed. And how do I know? Because we've just read what we've read. Jesus speaking about his church. The guarantee is not the church, his church will succeed. Why? Because it's positioned to succeed. He has positioned us as his people to succeed. It's been promised. The promise of, of Jesus is you will succeed. He said, I will build. And then he says, the gates of hell will not overcome it. When Jesus speaks, it's promises. It's his promise. And so we've been promised the church Jesus is building will succeed. It's a promise that I keep saying that's based on a process. This is good news. Uh, I don't know too many pastors who don't wake up on Monday morning going, God, there's got to be another way. This church is not working. It doesn't. But here's what's exciting is it's a process. The promise isn't, uh, he didn't say, I've built my church. Maybe I've been guilty of thinking he built it. And now why are we seeing all this stuff in it and all this nonsense and all this breaking away? Because he didn't say, I've built it. What he said is, I will build. It's a process. It's a verb tense showing continuation. It's a process and it's always in process and it's not yet finished. So the good news is the church that Jesus is building is not finished and it's being in a process of being built. That's why we can see some of the stuff going on and trust even in it, he's still building his church and let that give us faith. But also, it's promised on a, uh, 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 it's, he promises on a process, but it's also on his possessing. This is his church, dear friends. This is not our church. This isn't our thing. This doesn't belong to us. We, we belong to him. We're in his church. He purchased us with his blood. And the reason the promise will succeed is because we are his possession. This is his church. And that gives us guarantee. He's in full control. He has, it's also been given the power to succeed. We've been given God's power to succeed. If it's his church... And he is responsible for providing the resources to assure ongoing success for his church. His church, not the stuff we're doing. His church, so it's got to be his church. It also has the plan to succeed. And so a quick cameo around that Matthew 16, but I do believe it's important always to come back to that before we talk about the church. And I hope that that's not just something we know, it's something we're living in and keep contending for as we talk around some of these other truths about characteristics of the New Testament church. You know, in the New Testament church, when we read through scripture, we see that it is viewed as a body. And that 
body emphasizes function. We work together. We function together through a variety of organs that we see mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so the, the church is viewed as a body. And the body needs every organ to function for the church, the body, to be what it's supposed to be. It's also mentioned as a bride, the church. And uh, that's a good truth that needs to be reminded of, that this is a bride. We are a bride. The church is the bride of Christ. We don't belong to man. We don't belong to leadership. We don't belong to translocal teams. We belong to Christ. And leaders are preparing themselves and the bride for the return of the bridegroom. But we are the bride of Christ. And that emphasizes our faithfulness, not to ministry or to regions or to mandate, but faithfulness to Jesus. We need to be faithful to Him. Stay faithful to Him. I want to say carefully that if you're connected to a local church, you should be faithful to your leaders. We should be faithful to what we're a part of. But I've seen in history, and I'm sure many of you have, that some are so faithful and loyal to people that they become disloyal and unfaithful to God. And so for me, we've got to make sure we're being faithful to the Lord. He is the bridegroom. We, our faithfulness is to Him, not just to people or to, to mission, but to Christ. It is so important. Our love, for the, our love for the bridegroom and our loyalty to Him, Ephesians 5.25 speaks around that. The, the church in the New Testament is also emphasized as a building. I know that God doesn't live in a building made of stone. The Bible's clear on that. He dwells in us. But we are the church spoken of as a building. And that emphasizes Jesus as foundation, which we talked around a lot. Matthew 16, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. This building that He's putting together, living stones as it were, but Jesus Christ has to be the foundation and that's the emphasis of the building. We're living stones. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. There's another picture we see in the New Testament. And it's the brotherhood. Uh, which includes ladies too. I understand. But that is what the Bible says. It's emphasizing our fellowship with each other. That the church has to function together. Has to be faithful to the Lord. Has to uh, be together. But also we need to be in fellowship with each other. 1 Peter 2 verse 17 says, Love the brotherhood of believers. I think there's something in that for all of us. And so what I would like to do is just highlight a few characteristics, three major ones, and there's more than this. These are not just words to embrace. I believe these are cultures and characteristics that if we get right in the revelation of Jesus first, which I've spoken of, the church Jesus is building, if we give our attention and affection to these things, then the church, regardless of what we go through, even the season perhaps we're in right now, with all the lockdown and that, we can be strengthened and come out and thrive in the season that God has for us as we come out of these things. If we just continually, not go back to what I say, go back to the Word of God and make sure these characteristics, the, the nature of the church is represented in what we're involved in, in our hearts, but also in the local churches we're involved in. Within NCMI, I'm certainly pushing this with our team saying, guys, we're going to make sure we're seeing these things happen. Otherwise, we're missing the point. Great church, great thing, Jesus do it, but we're doing our thing. We're going to keep coming back. We need cultures to be developed, not just points, not just words, cultures. And I, these are cultures or characteristics that I do want to highlight. They're not new, but they're important for us to understand what it is God's about. So the characteristics or the cultures of the church, number one is to gather. Now that sounds obvious, but I want to suggest gathering is vital and strategic. Now, we're living in difficult days. I'm well aware. Even this point is how do we gather? I don't know. But we've got to find ways to gather. You can't claim to be part of a church 
God's church, the local church, if you're not gathering, if you're not connected. You can't do it from a distance. And right now, online, I get all that, and we need to use it, utilize it, and we're going to come out of this still using some of this. But this can't replace gathering. This is just another form. The early church met from house to house, and they met publicly together. And you know, we think we're under lockdown. The early church was not free to gather. They had to hide, and they had to do things. And the point being is, it's not the early church had it easy, we've got it bad. It's the early church found ways in God. And uh, I want to say that gathering is strategic, especially as I was reading through uh, the book of Romans and, and, and uh, just being reminded of the gathering and the people working together and just the understanding. And Paul saying, I long to be with you where I can impart to you things that are needed. And there's just, you, you can't do that from a distance or through cameras. You've got to be together and connect. I love in Hebrews 10, it says that forsake not the gathering of the brethren as the day approaches. And we're closer to that day. So I know we're not allowed to gather. I understand the restrictions right now. But I want to tell you, gatherings are strategic and vital. And even in this time, we can be creative and find ways. We can't just think people are going to get it online. And then when we come back, we'll be strong. We've got to utilize our time discipling, gathering with people, investing in people, um, connecting with groups, individuals, utilizing things, but not just for preaching, for discipling and bringing people in and bringing people through, for community, together with community. You know, you cannot be connected to Jesus as our head and separated from the body of Christ. And, and I realize that there are many people out there, maybe listening to me even share this who've been hurt by the church and just feel like I don't want to be part of the church and I'm doing my own thing and it's me and the Lord. I mean, that sounds great, but there's no biblical backing for that. I want to suggest you've got to be planted or planted in the house of God and there's no backing to be connected to Jesus and separate from His body. Now, I know that we are the church is the ecclesia, the called out one. I know that if you are saved, then you are part of the church, but I'm not talking global church. There's a need biblically for us to be connected in a local church with all the issues and all the things and with all the imperfections. God has not called us to walk alone with some big body that exists one day with Jesus. We have to be connected in a house, in the house of God, and we need to be planted in his house. There's no scripture that backs us being separate. I've often said every priest needs a hood. If you're a gangster, that's for you. If you're a sheep from New Zealand, perhaps... Every sheep needs a pen. Uh, every brick needs a wall for you diehard Pink Floyd fans, whatever your thing, or every tree needs to be planted. They're not cliches, they're truths from Scripture. And we can't reject this and think it's me and Jesus. We've got to understand, we've got to gather, we've got to be connected. In Psalm 92 verse 12, it says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age and they will stay afresh and green. Why? Because they planted in the house of the Lord. So in saying this, can I say, for gathering, all people have to believe that God has called them to join the church they're in right now. And, and what I mean by that is not membership lists and that we've often said that if when we ordain elders, which is part of our role as the team, and I get to do that a lot around the world, the big question I ask them privately and publicly in front of all the people, I'll say to them, do you believe that God has called you to be an elder, be part of this eldership team uh, in this church for this season? And if they say no, there's no way I'd ever ordain them. And if you're in that church, you'd say absolutely. They should not be an elder or a leader in this church if they don't believe God's called them to be there. 
And while I think that's important, I've also begun to believe more now that people in the church should have the same revelation for themselves. In other words, not about leadership, about being planted in this house. I feel like we need the same revelation that God's put me in this church for this season, not a church. And I'm going to spend my whole life looking for that church. Wherever God's put you, we need that conviction because until you planted, you cannot grow. And I do want to say you've got to come in through the gates and make sure you are planted in the house of the Lord. You know, interesting, God doesn't put you where you want to be. (laughs) I can't find a biblical backing. I've tried. But what I want to tell you, He does do. He puts you where He wants you to be. And the question is always, where do I fit? And I'm not sure I fit. And I mean, we've got people all over the world who don't go to church or they spend their lives jumping from church to church trying to find where they fit. Here's the thing. He doesn't fit you where you want to be. He fits you where He's put you. So in other words, you don't fit except God makes you fit. And, and I love that one text in Isaiah 41, 19. He says this, I'll put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I'll set in junipers in the wasteland and the fern, the cypress together. So that people may see and know and may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel created. So here's what it's saying. I don't know much about tree shrubs and bushes, I confess, but this I know. Not all those trees and shrubs belong in the desert, and they certainly don't all belong together. So what God's saying, I'm going to do impossible stuff, but I'm also going to take that which doesn't belong together, and I'm going to fit it and make it belong. So I'm going to make you fit where you don't think you fit, as long as I put you where you want to, where I need you to be. And he doesn't do this so people can go, wow, you're a good leader. What a great church. He goes on to say, so people may see that it's the hand of the Lord has done this. This is a divine thing. It's not a natural thing. And it's important for us in a gathering to know we don't go where we naturally fit. We go where God put us. And honestly, friends, we don't just be a hindrance. We get behind what God's doing there. But we don't look for the moment of leaving. We don't leave until God tells us to go. Can you imagine if we settled that, how strong the church could be, how most of the issues in the church would be sorted out because we all convinced God's put us there. So belong. Make sure you are where God wants you, not where you feel like you fit or where there's recognition for your gift, where God has put you. In that, get behind what God's doing. Back the vision and values. Love what God's doing outside of that church, but don't try and bring all of that into that church. Find what God's doing in the church you're part of and back it and get behind it. And of course, challenge your leaders and of course, have a word and have things to say because that's what church is about. It's not the leaders do it all. We follow. Get behind it and speak and share, but don't try to implement what God's doing elsewhere. Don't be so blessed with what God's doing elsewhere. Sometimes if the grass is greener on the other side, maybe our grass needs some watering. Don't try and get their grass. Water your own grass is probably a good thing. So back the vision and values. Get behind with what God's doing as long as it's biblical. Thirdly, belong. And we're talking about gathering here. But belong. Many churchgoers, I, I believe, desire the benefit of community. But few desire the responsibility to community. And so we love being part of this community with all the blessings. But we don't take responsibility. In. And I do want to say that we belong. We need to be part of this thing. These gatherings, there's purpose to our gatherings. And Maybe I can just challenge all of us and certainly those who lead local churches right now and say, we've got to have purpose to our gathering. We want people to come. We want people to gather. Let's get some purpose back to it rather than we just show up and hope God does something. I'm all for God doing all. But God is a God of order and God wants us to be uh, focused and functional and also knowing where He's calling us rather than just waiting for God to do it all. And so just a few thoughts around this. I'm not taking time here, but I'm really trying to unpack this 
We can break it up, whatever, but just more than do you know this, are we living in this? And I'm challenged by it as well, and others are, and it's not new, and I'm preaching this a lot, but I'm trying to hopefully be helpful and not offensive to you, but we need to hear these things. So purpose, the purpose of our gatherings, I believe first and foremost, any gathering is to encounter God first. And I know that sounds true, and yeah, I know that, but is it true? Is that the reason we're gathering? Are we all about me to offload my ministry, or to sing a song, or to gather together? Now, ultimately, every gathering, small or big, our main gatherings or our individual gatherings, whatever they be, first and foremost, should always be to encounter God. We gather to worship, not because we feel like it, because He's done good things, because He's worthy. And we don't call God when we worship. He calls us to worship Him. Um, somebody said the real crisis in worship today in the church is that people have no sense of the presence of God. And if we have no sense of His presence, how can we be moved to express the deepest feelings of our souls to honor and revere, worship and glorify God? So a lot of people show up to our gatherings without any expectation of engaging God. Why? Because we haven't made that the thing, not a focus. So how do we expect them to pour out their hearts before God when they don't even expect God to be around? Now, I know God's not in buildings. God's everywhere. I understand that. But we need to engage God, expect, and have people come with an expectancy. Someone said, when it comes to worship, and maybe us worship leaders can hear this for a moment. When it comes to worship, it's the heart that's more important than the art of worship. And we get so focused on, I'm awful professional. I think we can do things way better. But it's the heart that God's drawn to, not the 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 art or the skills we carry. He's drawn to the heart. So let's get our hearts right in expectation, preaching and whatever contributions we're making, worship, singing, whatever. Somebody said, you cannot find excellent corporate worship until you stop trying to find excellent corporate worship and pursue God himself. And somebody else said, God's not looking for excellent praise as he is for hearts that would pursue him. And so that to me is the expectation. We come with expectancy. We come to engage God. Yes, I must and can engage God on my own. But there's something that happens in a corporate dynamic when we come. And all of us have brought what we've carried, what we've encountered on our own. We come together to encounter God. God made it that way, friends. And that's why we gather. Also, we gather to engage with other believers. Uh, that's why this online stuff can work for a season, but God wants us to engage with each other, not just with Him, but with each other in real life, outside of meetings and in meetings. And so make space around those times to engage with other believers. We also come to encourage one another and be encouraged by one another, be inspired, which tells me we need testimonies, friends. We, we don't just need a good song, a few songs, some announcements and a preacher. We need people to give testimony. We need people. I, I want to tell you, Many times I'm more encouraged by what the conversations I have in the car park before I even get there to preach, when I'm preaching, by the testimony of what God's done in people. That's the point, is that we come to be encouraged, which means we bring our stories of encouragement. And they might not be from the front, and we don't have time to share them publicly, but share your testimony. I come to be encouraged, and I come also to bring encouragement. Imagine if gatherings were like that, how much more effective and how much more victory would come testify. Do it again, Lord. Show us what you have done. We're so asking for more. And often when God's doing something, we're never thanking Him. And I, I think we've got to get back to making space for testimonies. And so we come to be envisioned, friends. We don't come to just discuss the subjects of Scripture. We come to be envisioned. God puts us together to envision us. And so our truth, the Scripture preaches. Let's envision people, not just discuss truth. 
give vision. God's about vision. And I, I know people say we overemphasize vision, but the Bible's clear that without vision, Proverbs 29, 18, people die, they perish, they cast off restraint. We need vision. And part of a visionary role is to bring vision through Scripture, how people can proceed into the future God has. Not this is what the future looks like. This is how we can get into the future. To be equipped. Every gathering should be equipping us. God wants to bring us to a place of maturity. And it's not that we kind of hear our preachers tell us what to do. God wants us to be equipped with truth, with Scripture. He wants us to be discipled. And I believe every gathering, from big gatherings to little gatherings, the emphasis should be like Jesus left this mandate for us to make disciples. And so we come to be equipped, to be discipled. We come to be enlarged, to mature, to grow up, which means a lot of what's been preached needs to be not just awesome truth that we all amen, but challenging truth to grow up. No one likes to be told to grow up, but we need to grow up. And so, you know, you can find churches that are preaching all good stuff, telling us how awesome we are. And we need moments of hearing it. We also need truth to challenge us. So we can grow up. I'm a parent of three sons. And I'm telling you, friends, my biggest joy for them is to see them grow up. And I'm not a good parent if I tell them that everything's good all the time. I've got to challenge them and not to bring them down, to see them grow up. How much more does God want us to see His church grow up so Jesus can come back? So part of our gatherings is this thing of, of enlarging, helping people grow up and mature. And I also want to say that I think that all our gatherings should help us be enlisted find our place in it all. We talked about the body and everyone plays a role in it. And we've got to help people as we gather to find their role in the church, not just in our public gatherings, in the church and enlist them to be the body of Christ and to be part of the army of God. And so finding their place and helping them, that should be happening, I think, in all of our gatherings. And so the first point being in this is we we call together and uh, find creative ways in this time and season. Let's gather and when we come out of this, let's gather and make sure our gatherings are happening. Those of you who lead churches, make sure the gatherings are engaging some of these truths that I've shared perhaps and others. But also those who are part of a local church, don't forsake the gathering. Get connected. Find where God wants you. Come in through the elders. Uh, say to them, I want to stay. This is my home. And until God moves me on, this is home. But not sign on the dotted line and cut covenant. And just be accountable and real. And when you take your family, if you are married and with children, and you kind of Put them in the house and you, 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 you plant yourself and them in the house of God. Watch them grow. Uh, that's what this is about. We want to see growth. All right. So that's the first point. The second is to grow. Now, I'm not trying to be clever with the uh, alliteration here, but I do believe this is a culture. Culture number one is to gather the purpose, the essence, the characteristics of the church. Number one is to gather. Can't tell me part of a church if you're not gathering. Secondly, is to grow. And... Uh, this is a challenge for the leaders of the church, but also for the people, the, peop the, the followers, the sheep in the church. We need to be growing. And I know growth can be perceived in many things. And if we talk growth, most people say numbers. And I want to say numbers are important. We don't have a theology for small church. I can't see that in the Bible. But numbers are not the, are not the focus. I, I want to talk about true growth. Communion uh, is what we're talking about. And uh, not just breaking bread. I'm talking about communion. Living together, growing together. Interesting, I, I made earlier the, um, the point that God takes what doesn't fit and makes it fit. Interesting, if you think about a family, and I mean, I've got a family, I've been part of family, I'm part of the family of God, but just my own family or my own children. God, you can choose your friends and you can leave your friends. But you can't choose your family. You get put in a family. And here's the thing, 
you get put in a family with very different people. And the reason you get put in a family with different is because each other, each person, helps us grow up. He doesn't just put everyone the same in one household. I mean, I think of my three sons, they are like unbelievably different. I often wonder, how did they get their personality? There's such a mix of me or Nicole or me and Nicole or who knows what else. And they are so different and they kind of irritate me and each other. And I'm sure I irritate them. And Nicole. But here's the point. God puts us together as a family, not friends where we can say, I come out of here. A family that you irritate, but he puts us together to grow up. And the same in the local church. God puts people that irritate us. People on our team irritate us. People in our lives. And not because he wants to irritate us. Because he doesn't put the same people in the same place. He puts different people with different giftings. Different understandings. Different personality. And he puts us together for the, the sake of, as a family, that we all grow up. That we learn to work out our issues and our situations. And so, if we see that, friends, we don't just leave the church all the time. We work stuff out. And that's the same for this thing is that God puts us in community and we grow together because he puts all sorts of different people and we all have emphasis in it. But when we work together, we're growing together, we grow up together. And that is God's plan. Can I also suggest we should not be more concerned with material growth. And I think part of the challenge now is material growth seems to be fading away. We need to be concerned more with spiritual growth in the church. That's what I'm talking about growth. Yes, we need finances. Yes, we need people. Yes, we need buildings. But don't get focused on those things. Growth is spiritual. God wants to bring us to a place of spiritual growth, maturity. I've often said that we count success, uh, but God weighs success. And I want to just suggest again, on the day we all stand before God, with all that we've been involved in, the ministries, the churches, the teams, and so on, He's not going to pull out a calculator and add up the stuff. I know He doesn't need a calculator. He's God. But he's not going to bring out a calculator and add. What he's going to do, I believe, is bring out a scale and weigh how much of Jesus, how much of maturity, how mature are our people, how mature are we? And that's going to be the success of ministry. What are we leaving behind? Is it numbers or maturity? And I want to suggest when we grow up and grow out, that's when we have impact and increase. And so don't be so consumed with numbers alone, being discipled. He wants us to grow in being discipled, to bring us to a place of maturity. I think we're living in a day and age where the whole culture, all our culture is all about being young and we want to be young. We're trying to act young and dress young and keep young and forever young. And and uh, and I, I believe it's also in the church, you know, and we're trying to be, but here's one thing, be free to be you, but we're all getting older and God wants to bring us to a place of maturity. Jesus will not play Peter Pan, as it were, or Wendy in our Peter Pan desire to stay forever young. And so the goal, I don't believe God has goals, but if he had a goal and it would be one goal, this is it. Bring the people to maturity so my, my son can come back for his bride who's ready. So he has a goal for us. If he had one, it would be maturity. Is that our goal? Or is our goal all about numbers or <clears throat> materials or people or whatever? Let's make it about growing up. His goal for us. I remember a guy telling me a story. I was preaching around maturity. And guys, if I can be honest, I didn't hear a lot of maturity, people preaching on maturity anymore. And maybe we've started to again, but I think we need to get back to it. Not not getting rid of all the other stuff we preach, but we need to talk around maturity. We need to preach this if this is what God's about. And you might not get many amens. I certainly haven't got too many when I've preached around it, but it's what God calls us. We're either living for the opinions of man or the approval of God. Make a choice here. But I do believe that a good parent raises up their children to mature. A good leader raises up people to mature. God wanting us to raise up the people he's been given us. 
And maybe they won't cheer us and tell us how awesome we are, but the job is to raise them up to maturity. And I was preaching around this, and a man came to me, probably you'll watch this and be, know who you are, and said he had a picture or a vision of a, of a wedding. And uh, the wedding, the, 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 the bride was there with the veil on, and the wedding, uh, and the, the bridegroom came along, and, and they lifted up the veil. And as they lifted up the veil of the bride, they saw this baby. And it was like grotesque that this baby was getting married to this man. And he felt his interpretation was that if Jesus was to come back for his bride. Now, again, I'm not building a theology here. I just think it's a picture worth hearing and be reminded of. He said if Jesus was to come to, for his bride today, this is what he'd come back to, a baby. Uh, and that's grotesque, friends, with all due respect. We need to grow up and mature. And so, again, I, as I said, don't. Quote me, it's not a theology, I believe, but it is a point to say, yeah, let's ready her for him. Let's get people growing up. So this thing of gathering has a purpose, ultimately, to bring people to a place of growth, maturity, and communion, and community. Ephesians 4, which is clearly one of the texts we believe in big time, we use for us as a team, uh, who we are and how we operate. I do want to just kind of highlight a quick uh, few verses here, if I can. So go with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11, it says, Jesus speaking here, it says, it was he, I mean, this is Paul writing, saying about Jesus. It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. So just pause and say, Jesus gave these gifts. Christ exalted gifts when Christ was exalted. Not when he um, descended, but when he ascended, he gave gifts to the church. A Christ-exalted gifts, meaning when these gifts function the way Jesus intended, Jesus will be exalted, not the gift. And so he gave these gifts. All five gifts are needed and essential and important. And he gave them to the church for the church. Verse 12, he says, to prepare God's people for works of service, to prepare the church for ministry, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, just to pause and say, we often, I often utilize and highlight that this team exists with these gifts given by Christ to help equip the church for ministry. And often, forgive my ignorance, has been, we leave it at that. But actually, he didn't just give these gifts to equip the church for ministry. There's a purpose to all of this, that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, verse 13, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, which is immaturity, tossed back and forth by the waves, which speaks of instability, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in the deceitful scheming, impressionability, the three uh, destroyers, immaturity, instability, and impressionability. And he goes on, he says, instead speaking to the, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things, all things, grow up into him, who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body joint and held together by every supporting ligament that grows and builds itself up in, in love. Each part does its work. So these gifts were given by Christ to the church to equip the church for ministry, but goes on so that we may actually grow up and mature. So these gifts were not just given for ministry, they were given to bring maturity because that's the ultimate goal. But just to highlight out of that five things that God wants for all of us. He wants all of us, every follower of Jesus. And this is important for our gatherings and our growing. 
In Ephesians, we just read it. He wants, number one, all of us to be equipped. We saw that in verse 12. Every individual needs to be equipped. The church is a body and everyone has a function to perform and a part to play. And that word equipping means to put in place, to reset dislocated bones, to be made complete. Why? For the work of ministry. So my suggestion is, we don't just have meetings and teach on practical ministry. We need to teach a lot more in our leadership training on spiritual ministry. We need people to be able to minister spiritually, not just practically. Not just practical setting up, tearing down, making coffee, good stuff. But we also need people to learn how to bring their gift and how to minister. Because I think the church is strong in many areas with practical side. But perhaps we're weak in some because we haven't emphasized ministry and maturity when it comes to spirituality. But he desires for every one of us to be equipped. Secondly, we read in verse 12, He desires all of us to be edified. God has these five things for us. Number one, equipped. Number two, edified in verse 12. Edified means to build up, to mature, to develop. And when all of us are doing our part, the church, the body of Christ, as we said, grows. And can I say it grows up? And that, I believe, speaks of worship. It grows out, which speaks of evangelism. And it grows within which speaks of discipleship. It is edified, made strong, vibrant, and alive. And never, can I suggest, never confuse movement with action. Just because we're moving doesn't necessarily mean we're moving or going anywhere. And we need to go and grow to be the people God's called us to be. Thirdly, He's called us to be educated. So number one, He's called us to be equipped. Secondly, He's called us to be edified, we see in verse 12 of chapter of Ephesians 4, in, ver, in verse 13, thirdly, he's called us to be educated. Now that doesn't mean that we all have degrees, doesn't mean we all go to college, nothing wrong with those things. That's not what I'm speaking of. I believe God has a destiny, a goal which his church is to aim at. And that is verse 13, until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son and become mature. And that consists of, I believe, three parts. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge, the epignosius, the full and experiential knowledge of the Son. And a perfect teleon, a complete mature person. See, God wants us to know Him and He wants us to know Him truthfully in those areas. The fourth thing we see in verse 13 is God wants all of us to be enlarged and attaining to the whole measure, it says in verse 13, of the fullness of Christ. God didn't save us, friends, simply to take us to heaven. He saved us to make us like Jesus. And in Romans 8.29, it says, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And that goal will never change, not just to get us to heaven, to get us to be more like Jesus to be enlarged by the model of Christ, to be more like Christ. And the fifth thing that he wants for all of us from verse 14 is he wants us to be established. He doesn't want us to be immature, impressionable, and, and kind of vacillating in between him. He wants us to be spiritually children who are, who are strong. We're not immature. We're never settled. When you're immature, you're never settled. You're fickle. There's this constant shifting and no, we can't be dependable. We need to have roots. Immature people have no roots, no convictions, and no commitments. And when tough times come, people run. But we need to know the Word of God and obey the Word of God. And so I want to suggest that the church needs to grow stronger 
through revelation. The church needs to grow warmer through fellowship, relationship. The church needs to grow deeper through reproducing and discipleship. The church needs to be broader through responsibility and ministry, giving people responsibility, the priesthood functioning together, as we often talked about. We need the priest to be functioning. We need to release people into their gifting and calling, and everybody needs to step up. Three functions of a priest. A priest's role is to offer sacrifices. A priest petitions to God on behalf of others, and a priest represents God to the world. That's for all believers, and we need to be those people. And then also, he wants us to to grow larger through reaching out. Not just through more people joining, but through us evangelizing and reaching out. And I also want to say lastly, that we need to grow generationally through activating and releasing all people, young and old. Not a season to hold back. We want people to grow. doesn't mean they have to be old. It means they've got to be mature. But we've got to invest in them. We've got to release them. And we will grow generationally if we keep on activating and raising up and releasing all sorts, young and old, of God's people. And so that's something of what it means to grow. I've got a whole thing here on the Holy Spirit and His role in doing that. But I, I will come to that another time. But we do need to understand the Holy Spirit plays a major role. To be Spirit-led, it doesn't mean that we have... Just signs and wonders in our meetings. It means we're led by the Spirit. And he's, we, we're faithful to the Word of God. We need Spirit-led people. The early church was Spirit-filled, Spirit-moved, and Spirit-sent, and led by the Spirit. So we need to be filled. We need to be moved by the Spirit. We need to be uh, led by the Spirit. And that's part of the equipping of saints and so on. The Holy Spirit plays a major role in equipping God's people. And we need to find room for that in our meetings, our gatherings, in our times Don't just go about business as usual. Hear God, be led by the Spirit, ask God to show you who you need to invest in and so on. And the Holy Spirit is the greatest revealer and teacher of all. We can have great preachers and great orators and great teachers who are needed, but we need the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the greatest teacher of all. He reveals and brings us to a place of maturity. He helps us grow. He plays a major role. And I'd like to talk about that another time, about the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. The third and final point in culture that I want to look at. So the first one is we gather. We need to gather, and that's about community. We need to grow, and that's about communion together, working it out and being who God's called us. And the third point, friends, honestly, this is probably, you can't start here, but this is the result of the other two. And this is we need to go. We need to gather, we need to grow, and we need to go. We have a commission. Uh, you know, community without mission, somebody said, is cancer. It's growth without purpose. That's what cancer is. And so many people are functioning and looking for growth, but there's no purpose to growth. It's just to have. We haven't been called to have. We've been called to open our hands and release and commission and to go. And that's important. God's looking for churches. The whole thing of God's release in this season, I believe, is people who will be open-handed to receive, but also open-handed to release. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said it's the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. And I love that. It's not the evangelist's job. It's the whole purpose, the whole region, all people in the church to preach the whole gospel. You know, missions, this mission and this great commission and this going, it didn't begin with the great commission. It actually began in the heart of God. Uh, It first beat in his heart before it ever breathed its life into the sustaining force in his church. God is a missions God. He's a mission-minded, can I say God? The gospel is a mission-minded message. Uh, 
If it could, if it could not save every sinner, there'd be no reason to take it to every nation. The Bible is a missions book. <laughs> you can't read the scriptures and not see the mission from Genesis right through to the book of Revelation. The Great Commission is a missions mandate. It identifies the local church as the center for world evangelism. The church is a missions people. And I believe the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of mission. The nearer we get to Him, the more intensely missional we should be. And the three foundations to rest on and continue in our mission is, number one, a compassionate God. If we try and move into mission without understanding the heart of God, quickly we lose the reason why we go about it. But our foundation to rest this commission on is it's a compassionate God. And the description of God's love is in John chapter 3, verse 16, which we love to tell the world, but we need the church to hear this again. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son, His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved. This is the heart of God. It's an extravagant heart, friends. God so loved. It's a love so infinite that it is everlasting. It's a love so incomprehensible that it passes all knowledge. It's a love so indiscriminate that it will be given to the worst of sinners, one like me, and perhaps even you. In Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were still, or yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's extravagant love. It's an exhaustive love. Why? It's for the whole world. It's not for the chosen few, the ones we like, the regions we go. It's for the whole world, for God so loved the world. Second Peter 3.19, it says that God is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, He would have all men to be saved. Does that mean all men will be saved? No, but that means every opportunity should be given to all men. For God so loved the whole world. It's an indiscriminate, it's an ex ex exhaustive, it's, it's for everyone. Thirdly, it's an expressive love. For God so loved that He gave, friends. It ex he expressed love by giving. He didn't just have a concern or a heart for people. He did everything in His power to save all of mankind. By expressing, He gave. He promised a Savior to deal with the problem of sin. And He provided the only Savior to deal with the problem of sin. And that Savior was His one and only Son. Salvation is now offered on the, whole, on the sole condition of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He's given us a compelling message. Romans chapter 1 verse 14 and 16, Paul says he's indebted to God to give the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. I'm indebted He's given us this compelling message. And I think having heard the greatest message in the world, he was compelled to share it with whoever he could. So great was his sense of obligation. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And lastly, we are a commissioned people. We've been authorized by the power of Christ. Jesus said, All authority on earth be in heaven and earth been given to me, now go. He has authorized us to go and do this. It's been accomplished by the plan of Christ. He's done it all. And He's assured us with His presence. And as you go, I'll be going with you. 
If we go, when we go, he says, you're not doing this alone. I've commissioned you. I've authorized you to do this. I've accomplished it. And I'm assuring you of my presence. I will be with you as you go. You see, friends, we need to be personally involved in reaching out. We call to gather, we call to grow, but we also call to go. We, we call to influence and impact those around us. We call to reach cities and neighborhoods, but also nations. It's both. It's not either or. Don't be so consumed with nations that you're neglecting your own house, your neighbors, your own city. But don't be so consumed with your city and your neighbors that you're forgetting there's the nations of the world. It's all. And we've been commissioned. We've got to influence those people. God never told the world to go to the church, but he has told the church again and again to go to the world. Somebody said, if the world is not your parish, well, then your parish will become your world. And that's a dangerous and a very tragic and sad thing. When our church becomes our world, our parish, and that gather, grow, is all that we focused on without actually understanding we're called to go. You know, Jesus did leave us a theology to arm wrestle over. And I understand theology is important. And I know they've got great, clever people and theologians even within our ranks. But he didn't cause us to get together to arm wrestle around theology. He didn't leave us a theology. He actually left us a commission to go and fulfill, to go and make disciples. And I believe when you read through scripture, you see heaven won't rest until this gospel goes global. You see, heaven has prepared a way for the gospel. We see that heaven provides the guide for this gospel. And I do believe when we go global, it means we've got to be local being global and global being local. And somebody has said, the mark of a great church is not our seating capacity, but it's our sending capacity. And I wonder how many of us will focus on the seats and how many we can get seated rather than how many can we raise up to release. I'm not saying that we've talked about the importance of gathering a church, but the purpose is to raise up people, to release them, to go and be the church all the time, not just Sundays when we come together. So let me challenge us with this. Live sent. Don't be sent, live sent. Every moment of our lives, we should be living sent and understanding this commission. Remember, Jesus is Lord of His church and we are to obey Him completely. The leader of the church is Jesus and we are to follow Him totally. Jesus is the lover of the church and we should adore Him supremely. And Jesus is the life of the church. And we get to know him personally. And he is our strength. He is our source. He is our savior. He's the life and the truth that both supports and sustains his church. And he has assumed the responsibility for carrying it safely into its future. And he has secured its victory for all eternity. Let's be the church that God's called us to be. Let's be proactive. Let's get our revelation right. Let's keep understanding the need, the purpose. Let's not build our thing and ask God to be in it. Let's get back to making sure that what we're part of is what Jesus is building. Let's have faith. Let's grow in our revelation. Let's gather. Let's not neglect gathering. Let's get together with purpose and understanding and reason. Can you imagine what our gatherings would be like if we come back with an expectation? But also that we may grow. Let's grow up. Let's become more mature. When we see each other again, let's be more mature than when we last saw each other. Let's aim for knowing Christ and for maturing. And then let's keep going, friends. Let's stay commissioned. Let's live sent. 
Let's not be sent from a meeting. Let's not go to an equip and be commissioned there. Let's live commissioned. Jesus has commissioned us. Let's give the glory to him. Let's build with culture and these characteristics. And let's see his church thrive and walk in the bigness and the fulfillment of what he has promised. The best I honestly believe is yet to come, but for the church that is committed to his values, his, his culture, his characteristics of how he intended. God bless you. Keep building, keep growing, keep walking with God, keep walking with us. Let's see the church arise and shine because its light has come now. God bless.